it is my hope, my desire, and always my prayer to develop within you a desire to read the Word of God. And when I say that, I mean read the Word of God in its entirety. A lot of people will read Scripture in the big sections, but they skip over what I refer to as the fine print of the Bible. And there's a reason for that. Just like the fine print of most contracts, we see it and bogged down thinking, oh gosh, I don't want to go all the way through that, or I don't like the placement of where it's at, or I'm already tired from reading other parts of, of a document, so this part I'm just going to skip past, and if I have to sign my name, I'll sign my name at the bottom of it. How many of you online have had to use user agreements, and you just skip right down to the bottom and click? That's the fine print. We all do that. Fine print touches every one of us at some point in our life. And the people that write it know that most of us are going to skip over it. There have been some different corporations that have put some really creative things in their fine print because they know people are going to skip over it. Interestingly, Amazon is one of those huge, huge online marketing company, Amazon. Listen to what they put. Buried in section 5710 of Amazon's Terms of Service about the acceptable safe use of lumberyard materials, the online marketplace has stashed a clause that negates the whole section should the zombie apocalypse take place. Of course, they have a broader legalese way of stipulating such an event. This is how it reads. However, this restriction will not apply in the event of the occurrence certified by the United States Center for Disease Control or successing body of a widespread viral infection transmitted via bites or contact with bodily fluids that causes human corpses to reanimate and seek to consume living human flesh, blood, brain, or nerve tissue, and is likely to result in the fall of organized civilization. That's, that's in their fine print. Isn't that hilarious? There's also the online company called Tumblr. Listen to this. Microblogging platform and social media tool Tumblr took a very honest and to the point approach in their user agreements. They use their terms of service to gently remind kids that there are other things out there. Now this is what it says in their terms of service. You have to be at least 13 years old to use Tumblr. We're serious, it's a hard rule based on U.S. federal and state legislation. But I'm like 12.9 years old, you plead. Nope, sorry, if you're younger than 13, don't use Tumblr. Ask your parents for a PlayStation 4 or try books. <laughs> iTunes even tucks something away in their fine print. It reads like this at their end user agreement or in their end user agreement iTunes stipulates that anyone on any of the included list of embargoed countries, an array of persons and entities denied entry and citizens of embargoed countries. Wedged in directly after this is an added limitation on the use of their service. You also agree that you will not use these products for any purposes prohibited by United States law, including without limitation the development, design, manufacture, or production of nuclear missiles or chemical or biological weapons. That's from iTunes. Who knew that their music was that powerful? You cannot use their music to create nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons. I like this one. It circulated around for years. The following clause was placed deep within the standard performance contract of legendary rock band Van Halen. Now take a look. 
Under their heading, munchies, that must be provided by the hosting group that's bringing them in, they have this clause. You have to have potato chips with assorted dips available for them, nuts, pretzels, M&Ms with a warning, absolutely no brown ones, 12 Reese's peanut butter cups, and 12 assorted Dannon yogurts on ice. Now, that's a standard contract, and the people that bring in large groups like this always sign it and then try to live by it. Now, people always thought Van Halen was kind of outside their mind for doing things like this. Do they really think that much of themselves? But listen to their reason. This detail became notorious, an apparent prime example of the ridiculous demands of rock stars. However, the reason behind the inclusion of this clause went far deeper than a bowl of candy. As lead singer David Lee Roth explained in his autobiography, Crazy from the Heart, this clause was a test to see if the event space had carefully reviewed all the technical criteria of the concert that they would be hosting. Since Van Halen was one of the first performances of its size to appear at lower level venues, many of the spaces were unprepared for the sheer weight of the equipment. A brown M&M would indicate to the band that their host hadn't read the contract, making a potentially dangerous technical error likely. Kind of interesting. Tuck it in there to see if they're really going to do everything else. This one is kind of funny. A Russian man after deciding he wasn't happy with the terms of a credit card offer he received in the mail, took it upon himself to rewrite the contract to include 0% interest, no fees, and no credit limit. His added clauses also promised penalties to the bank should it fail to hold up its end of the agreement or attempt to cancel the contract. He signed it, and the bank did too, not noticing the amendments. When the bank filed a lawsuit against him for unpaid balance and related fees, the court ruled in the man's favor, requiring him only to pay the balance on the card, not the extra fees. <laughs> Every once in a while, it comes back around to the little guy. Here's one more for you. Many corporations participate in attempts to be the most creative and shocking on their April Fool's Day pranks, but GameStation went all the way into their terms of service to do their deed. 7,500 people who placed an order on their website on April 1st, 2010, agreed to this. To grant us a non-transferable option to claim for now and forevermore your immortal soul. Should we wish to exercise this option, you agree to surrender your immortal soul and any claim you may have on it within five working days of receiving written notification from GameStation or one of its duly authorized minions. Only 12% of purchasers saw the clause and clicked the option to nullify soul transfer after GameStation awarded them with, afterwards, GameStation awarded them a coupon. After the holiday was over, GameStation graciously relinquished their rights to the souls. Interesting. Fine print really does touch all of us, and most of us ignore it. We skip right over it. There's a reason for that. This is the working definition of fine print. The details of a contract or other document that are important but easily overlooked, often due to very small size of the text. Or the placement, like we've already talked about. Scripture has sections just like that. They're not written in tiny script or tiny text, but they still fit in the category of often overlooked. 
with the guys that I pray with this morning, I ask them just to start making a list for me of passages that they would normally overlook. Of course, at the top of the list, and it's always at the top of the list, is genealogies. You've heard me say before, when you come across a genealogy in Scripture, don't skip through it. You read every word of it because there are nuggets of gold hidden in those genealogies and great teaching. They're not included in Scripture just for history. They are there to teach us things. So you read those. Jim Ray said very accurately that he skips over the first and the last of almost every book. I said, give me an example. He said, the authorship, the way books start out. I, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, along with Timothy and so on, to the elders at the church in Ephesus, or however it might read, grace and peace be yours. We skip over those, and we go right into the the meat of the message. And then we come to the end of a book, and there might be something that, that causes us to skip out of that as well. And more often than not, it's a heading. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go with me to the book of Jude. Tiny little book, one chapter. If you don't know where to find Jude, because it's so small, go to the book of Revelation, turn left, one book, you'll be at Jude. It's only one chapter, 25 verses long. Now here's what Jim was talking about. Verse 1 in the greeting, Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, here's why you don't skip over that. Because Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, if you really study that out, you will discover this. Jude was also the half-brother of Jesus. You need to know that when you get into his book. Because Jude, in these 25 verses, will talk about things that you don't find anywhere else in Scripture. And that can cause you to say, how in the world would Jude know that? He was the half-brother of Jesus. Grew up sharing a bedroom with him. Jesus shared things with his brothers that some of the rest of us are not privileged to. So when Jude writes the things that he writes, set up and pay attention. He was the half-brother of Jesus. But if you skip over the authorship of the book, you'll never know that. And we skip over it because the next heading reads like this, judgment on false teachers. Well, hey, I'm curious about that. I want to get into that. That piques my interest. Well, don't skip over what precedes it because you need it. Then you go all the way through his book. You come to the next heading, at least the way it's broken down in my Bible, and it says a call to persevere. Well, that sounds quite personal. I want to read that because that's going to touch me right where I live. A call to persevere. Something that is shared with every Christian. But then we come to the next heading. The doxology. That sounds kind of churchy. Kind of religious. I don't want to read that. So we close the book. And all we have are just three more verses to finish it. But we close the book. That looks like fine print. So I'm not going to read that. Or if I do, I'm going to skim over it and not pay attention. And my friends, that is tragic. Because listen to what Jude writes. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. There's great teaching in those verses. You read all the way to the end. Read till the whistle blows if you're a sports person. Don't quit early. If you're a bird hunter, maybe this will resonate with you. Richard Kendall and I were just talking about this. You hunt all the way to the end of the field. Don't leave early. 
Because if you walk out early, the birds that you drove down to the end of the field are going to flush out and you won't be there. Hunt all the way to the fence. You go all the way through. Don't quit early. The book of Philippians is a perfect example of that. We're going to finish it today. We started this book all the way back in June. We're going to finish it today. And I want to encourage you to stay with me all the way through today because Paul finishes on a high note. The entire book of Philippians is a high note, but the way he finishes, he does it with power. He does it with authority. He does it with teaching, and he does it with curiosity. You're going to see what I mean. Go with me to Philippians 4. Here's the fine print of the book titled Final Greetings. Now, just based on that title alone, a lot of folks would close their Bibles. They would skip right out. Don't do it. Read the fine print because there's a clause in this that hopefully will make you go, what's that now? Here it is. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There's at least three things that I want to pull out of this. Each one shows a different characteristic of the Apostle Paul. Now, you may look at that and say, Phil, you just read verse 21 through 23. How are there three things in there? Well, you stay with me all the way to the end, all the way till the whistle blows, and you'll see. It all begins with Paul the teacher. Paul says, greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. Listen to how he says this. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. This is not the only place in Scripture where we find a command like this, but it is one of the tamer ones. Here's what I mean by that. Four different times in the New Testament, we are instructed to greet one another with a holy kiss. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he'll do it again. Greet one another with a holy kiss. He'll do it again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we might just think that that is a Paul-centered command, and Paul is totally okay with that type of a greeting. But Peter even throws in on it in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we tend to not do that in our culture and society. And if you have personal space issues like I do, you celebrate the fact that we do not do that. We shake hands. We bump fists. We will hug from time to time. We'll slap each other on the back. We'll look at one another and simply smile. But we tend not to greet one another with a holy kiss. That is a cultural application. Still, people even in our society and our culture will do that. But if you go over to the Mideast, men will kiss men, women will kiss women. It's a greeting, just like a handshake. And I have to tell you, I've been in the Mideast, and, and it makes me wholly uncomfortable, terribly uncomfortable. And I've been in churches in the United States when men have come up and kissed me. There was one man in a church that we served. I've told you about him before. His name's George Wolf. George believed that every bald head needed to be kissed. So he was big man. He would come up and stick his elbow into my chest and his hand behind my neck, and there was no way to get away from it. You could not get away from it. And he would pull me in until he could just kiss my head. I've prayed for his soul for years doing that to me. Another 
man that had come into one of the churches that Tina and I served in, he was brand new to the Word of God and terrified because of some things that had happened in his house. And Tina and I went to visit him, and the things that were happening in their house were not the kinds of things that I wanted to take my then-pregnant wife into, so she stayed outside. When I walked up and rang the doorbell, that man opened up the front door, picked me up. I'm not kidding. Picked me up. Makes Ray Brossman look small. Picked me up and kissed me on both cheeks, and then he set me back down, and he said, if you'll take off your shoes, I'll wash your feet. He was desperate, so he was reading Scripture and seeing very literal things, and he wanted to follow everything the Bible said. So he greeted me with a holy kiss, and he was ready to wash my feet, at which time I said, I'm good, it's, it's okay, and please don't kiss me again. Well, now here we are in Philippians chapter 4, and we get this tamer teaching on greet every saint. Boy, I love this verse because it takes a lot of pressure off. I mean, I'm looking at Henry Roy, and the last thing I want to do is go kiss him and the Lord. So I love this. I can greet him in Jesus Christ without having to do that. Now, Paul is talking about something much deeper than me just going to Henry and saying, Henry, how you doing? And not really caring. He's talking about a greeting much deeper than that. The Bible in the Greek language uses a word for this, though it is not used in this passage. The implication of it is here. That Greek word is this, koinonia, koinonia. It is translated different ways in Scripture. Most often in modern Christianity, we translate the word koinonia as fellowship. But let me show you a really good working definition of koinonia. Koinonia is dynamic relationship. It depicts an interactive relationship between God and believers who are sharing new life through Christ. The Greek word captures the entirety of this relationship. It involves active participation in Christian community, sharing in spiritual blessings and giving material blessings. Having no equivalent in English that captures the whole spectrum of meaning, translators focused on a specific aspect of koinonia in each context. Acts chapter 2 focuses on the relationship among believers, while 2 Corinthians 9 uses koinonia to express generosity and community. Paul also uses koinonia to describe the way he identifies with Christ's sufferings. John, in his first letter, uses koinonia to describe what connects us to God and to each other through Christ. The variety of uses in the New Testament reveals that koinonia involves a deeper level of fellowship than an informal social gathering. The essential element of koinonia is participation. Christ is what connects us. So when Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. He's talking about a koinonia type of greeting, a greeting that says there is a commonality within us because of Jesus. We are connected because of Jesus. That makes us different than other relationships that I have. That makes us different from other relationships within the world because we have koinonia, because we have that type of fellowship and connection. There is a different greeting that is necessary. Greet one another. Greet each other in Jesus Christ. You do that with a different face. You do that with a different greeting. 
When I come to Henry and say, Henry, how are you doing today? It requires me to listen to the response because I am greeting him in Jesus Christ. A koinonia-type greeting, the type of greeting that Paul is talking about is one that demonstrates genuine concern. So when I say to Henry, Henry, how are you doing? I am genuinely concerned about him. I want to hear the response. I don't want to say, Henry, how are you this morning, and then just walk on by. I don't just want to look at Henry and say, good morning, Henry, and then just walk on by. To greet someone, another believer in Jesus Christ, in genuine concern, says that I want to engage with you. I want to hear about you. I want to share with you. That's what Paul's teaching. It doesn't require a handshake, a fist bump, a back slap. It requires connection. It requires concern. That's what Paul wants us to hear. And so now he's teaching them at the end of this book, and and so glad he does it this way instead of saying, greet one another with a holy kiss, where I can just say, well, that was cultural and I'm moving on because I don't live in the Mideast. He doesn't do that so that I have to pay attention. People with personal space issues like me, I have to pay attention and really think about what that means. Greet one another in Jesus Christ, in Koinonia. Yesterday, I had the privilege of seeing that played out just yesterday, the day before I was going to preach this. The first time I saw it came in a text from some folks that were wondering about people that had been struggling throughout the course of this week, and they wanted to know how they were doing. It was a koinonia moment where they were genuinely concerned and trying to find out. The next time that it happened for me happened in the evening when I was on the phone with some folks that were genuinely concerned about a brother and a sister that are in the hospital right now and battling through some different things, and they had just hung up with them, and they were, it was not good. Things were difficult, and they were looking for the next step out of genuine concern, out of koinonia. They took that step because they had just greeted them in Jesus Christ, and they were now carrying their concern That's koinonia, that's greeting one another. I'm not done, I'll stay in this as long as I need to because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, I will stay in this with you. That's what Paul's teaching. Those of you that have experienced that, that have been on the receiving end of that type of a greeting, know how powerful it is. Those that you have, of you that have extended that type of greeting to brothers and sisters in Christ know what a blessing it is to do that. So Paul's saying, you greet one another. You greet one another. And all the saints in Rome are sending their greetings to you. When he says that, it's as if he's saying that they heard that I was writing you a letter and they wanted me to say hello to you. So he did. All the, all the saints that have traveled with me, the brothers that have traveled with me, they say hello. It is the same thing. It's as if those brothers said to him, hey, when you talk to the church in Philippi, please tell them we said hello. And Paul did. He took it seriously. And he passed on that greeting. Folks, take it seriously. Greet one another in Jesus Christ with koinonia greetings, concerned greetings. That's what we get from Paul at first. We get this great teaching. But the second thing that we get to see out of these verses, these few verses that we just read, is not just Paul the teacher, but we get to see Paul the risk taker. Join me in verse 23. I told you that there was something in this passage that should make you just sit up and say, what's that now? 
If you have your Bible with you, I want you to see it. I want you to dial in close to this. So open your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4. Here it is. Verse 22, not 23, I'm sorry. All the saints greet you. We just talked about that. Especially those of Caesar's household. in the world does that mean? Especially those of Caesar's household. That tiny little phrase, underline that in your Bible, because if you're looking for something that has perplexed biblical scholars for 2,000 years, you just found it. Here it is. This is why you play till the whistle blows. You hunt all the way to the end of the field, because there's things like this in Scripture. For 2,000 years, teachers and scholars, preachers, have debated what this really means, especially those of Caesar's household. If you were to go to the footnotes of your Bible, some of you have written in those footnotes that that means the imperial guard, those that Paul was chained to. Again, with those guys that I pray with on Sunday mornings, we spent quite a bit of time just looking at this because it's such an intriguing thing in Scripture. So we bogged down on it this morning before church began, and Richard Kendall Grab that one. He said, I just assume that that means the guards, the imperial guard. And there's a large group of scholars that would say that. That's why it's in some of your footnotes that Paul's talking about the imperial guard. But the critics of that philosophy will point out to us that at no point have biblical writers been even a little bit shy in mentioning how guards, prison guards, have come to know the Lord. That's never happened in the Bible. So from critical examination, it doesn't really seem like that's who he's talking about. If Paul was talking about the guards that were shackled to him, then he would have said that. He didn't. He's already told us he was in chains. Why wouldn't he have said, and the guards that have become believers greet you? So that one kind of gets shelved from critical examination as not really probable. Well, then there's this second one that you might find in the footnotes of your Bible, and a lot of scholars believe this too. He's talking about the civil servants that are a part of Caesar's household that come in there to serve. There's a lot of folks that believe that the gospel had gotten to Rome before Paul did, and that's probably pretty accurate. And so their belief is that when Paul was imprisoned, these Christians that predated Paul's arrival that were civil servants started getting near Paul as much as they possibly could and helping to meet his needs. They were trying to be around him. So when Paul says, especially those in Caesar's household, That's who he's talking about, the civil servants that are serving within the household. Here's the problem with that, the critical problem. If you're looking at verse 22, read right before this. All the saints greet you. Paul would already talked about that group of people, the saints that were there. He'd already talked about the brothers that were tending to his needs and that had traveled with him, and now he throws out this broad thing, all the saints greet you. So critical examination says that that's probably not who he's talking about. So there's a group of people that believe he's talking about Caesar's extended family. Nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, so on. Maybe that's the case. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there's a legend Now, mind you, it's a legend. This doesn't come from Scripture. It is a legend that gives us a little deeper understanding of who Paul might be talking about. 
I first heard this legend 30 years ago. I've taught it a few times, and I've heard a few other people teach it. But it is always regarded as a legend. Here it is. Now, you need a little bit of dating in order to understand this. Paul was imprisoned in the year 61 to 62 in Rome. Those were his two years that he was imprisoned. That means that Caesar at that time was Nero. So those that believe this legend would teach that Nero was out of town. He was not in Rome. And while he was gone, his wife came to hear the Apostle Paul preach. And when she heard Paul preach, she became a believer. She gave her life to Jesus. And when Nero got back to town, he was seven kinds of holy mad about it because her life was changing, and he didn't like it. At the end of the two years of imprisonment, Paul was released on a technicality. In Rome during those days, a person could only be held for two years without going to trial. We know through Scripture that Paul never went to trial. A lot of scholars would say the reason that he never went to trial was the Jews from Jerusalem, the Pharisees that brought accusation against him, never traveled to Rome. So his accusers never came. And as a result of that, Paul had to be released. And he was. In 62 AD, Paul got out of jail. In 64 AD, something really significant happened. Rome burned under Nero's rule. And who did Nero blame? The Christians. The Christians. Now, why would Nero have blamed Christians? Was it just because they had stirred up all kinds of unrest? Well, the movement in Rome was still fairly small at that time. Why would Nero have blamed the Christians? Because of what Paul had preached to his wife. And Nero was furious about it. It changed his household. In 64 AD, or possibly the beginning of 65 AD, something else happened. The details of it are quite sketchy, even in history, scripture and history. It is quite sketchy. And so we can't necessarily tie everything together, but we can get some loose ideas about it. We know that Paul was rearrested in Rome. It was his second Roman imprisonment in late 64, which means right after the fire or early 65. And in 68 AD, just a few months before Nero himself died, Paul was beheaded by Nero. He lost his head under Caesar's edict before Nero lost his own life. Not long after that, and some scholars would tell you that on the exact same day, a historian named Eusebius actually says this, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. The reason for the differences? Pretty simple. Roman law would not allow a Roman citizen to be crucified. Paul was a Roman citizen. He could not be crucified. Peter was not. Peter was crucified under Nero's edict. And by his own request, he had asked to be crucified upside down so as not to take anything from how Jesus had died. Paul, on the other hand, history records it, was beheaded as a Roman citizen under Caesar's edict. Now, why? Why was Caesar so mad? By the way, before we move on from there, do you know who was third on Rome's most wanted list during that time? It was a man named Aquila. 
because the church in Rome met in his house, his and Priscilla's house. A few months after Paul died and a few months after Peter died, whether those were at the same time or not, Aquila was arrested under Caesar's edict and he was put to death because Caesar was doing everything he could to stop Christianity in Rome. Why? Why? The legend, and that's all it is, the legend says, because Paul led his wife to Christ and Caesar didn't like it. So here's Paul, the risk taker, saying even the saints in Caesar's household greet you. Now that was probably in 62, 61, 62 AD, so Rome hadn't burned, Nero wasn't all that upset, but Paul was smart enough to not list people by name. And we're talking about a man who was never shy to list people by name. When he was greeting people and sending greetings, Paul would list people by name. Romans chapter 16 has name after name after name after name after name of believers. But Paul, as much as he was a risk taker, didn't go that far. So he left this curious little glimpse in Scripture for us. The saints in Caesar's household greet you. A lot of people will find themselves having to take risks in Christ. Happens all the time. It's why the Bible would teach us to count the cost before we become a Christian. For some people, the greatest risk that they will ever take is in salvation because they know that they're going to be estranged from family members as a result of it. They know they'll be ostracized and cast out because of Jesus. It's a huge risk. For other people, the greatest risk will be in transformation because as their life is transformed, other people are not going to value that transformation and they're going to lose relationship. For other people, it's in obedience. They read something in Scripture and they choose to be obedient to it and it costs them something. There is risk-taking involved in Christianity. But there is always great reward. And with every one of those risks, we have to value it against the reward. And that's what Paul did with this risk of mentioning Caesar's household. He had to measure the risk versus the reward. And for the Apostle Paul, the opportunity to present the power of the gospel, always the risk of that was always overshadowed by the reward of that. Whether that was other people coming to know Christ or whether that was just the assurance of his own walk with the Lord and his own position. Let me tell you something, friends. Now listen to me. If you didn't hear anything else, if the legend doesn't matter to you, if, if greeting one another doesn't matter to you, you listen to me. The reward of risking everything for Christ will always be greater. It will always be greater. The reward of walking through life with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ will always overshadow any risk. Take the risk. Take the risk. Now we've looked at Paul the teacher and we have looked at Paul the risk taker. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 4 and finish with Paul the preacher. I was in the wrong place. Philippians 4, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It is not surprising to me and hopefully not to you that the message Paul would preach at the end of this great book on joy is grace. Paul was the preacher of grace. He really was. Paul knew, 
He knew the law that had come through Moses, but he knew the grace that came through Jesus. It was that grace that had changed him. It was that grace that had covered his past. It was that grace that was sustaining him in the present. And it was that grace that gave him the hope of everything that waited for him, everything that lied ahead. That's how grace works. It touches our past and it sustains us in our present and it leads us into the future. That's grace in its deepest form. That is grace. And he wants to point out that that comes through Jesus. The grace of Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Man, what an ending. What a sermon. Just those words. What a sermon. The grace of Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pull out the Jesus Christ portion of that so that we understand the depth of it. I love this. I, I don't even know who said it. have no idea where it came from, but this is really, really good stuff. Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. But love that stoops, that's grace. And that's the grace of Jesus Christ. He stooped down to touch us. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe stooped down to touch us and to save us and to give us grace. Grace to cover our past, grace to sustain our present, and grace to lead us home. That's the grace of Jesus Christ, and it only comes through Him. It only comes through Him. We may see grace from other people as they stoop down, but there's nothing that comes close to the grace of Jesus Christ and what it does for us. John Newton understood that when he wrote these words. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And Paul says, let that type of grace be with your spirit. See why we read the fine print? It matters. Don't skip sections of Scripture because you don't think they have meaning or value. You read the fine print all the way till the whistle blows, all the way to the end of the field. You read every word because in just these few verses, there's those three things. Paul the teacher, Paul the risk taker, Paul the preacher. Listen to every word and apply it. I did my best to do that this week. I had to go to the hospital in Spokane on Friday to visit some folks, and so I'm thinking through the message and different things that, that I'd been studying and working through throughout the course of the week, and I thought to myself, I'm, I'm going to do my best today to apply these things. Starting with the greeting. That's what I really wanted to do. And then I wanted to progress a little bit into the risk-taking. And then I was hoping through the midst of it, I'd be able to share grace. And so here's, here's what was going through my mind, goofy as it might be. By the way, Tina was not able to go with me. And when she's not able to go with me, my mind goes weird places. And so I thought, I'm going to go to the hospital. Hospitals have been difficult places lately. And the folks that work in the hospital have given of themselves over and over and over again. And a lot of them are just tired. And so I thought, when I walk in, I'm, I'm just going to greet people. And if from behind a mask, I'm going to do my best to greet them with a smile. And I'm going to start. This was my whole thinking. I'm going to start in the parking garage. 
Well, I tried, but the parking garage attendant who was still in there was shut up behind glass and there was no talking to him. So I was like, well, okay, failure number one. But then I, I got into the front desk and there were a couple of nice people sitting behind that desk and I got to talk with them as I put on my mask and I did my best to greet them in Jesus. Just wanted them to think to themselves, well, that was a nice person that came in. That wasn't somebody that was upset with us or somebody that was sick, just a nice person. They didn't know who I was. And so then I go to the next spot, which was the screening station, and, and get to visiting with them. And I'm smiling from behind my mask and talking with them. And they found out I was a, a pastor. And so we had a, a pretty great interchange. It was really a great interchange. And I'm, I'm just walking. I'm thinking, I am living Philippians chapter 4 right now. This is good stuff. And then I thought to myself, well, that's enough. I'll just stop right there. But I didn't. I thought to myself, I'm going to get on this elevator. I'm at Sacred Heart Hospital. You have to take an elevator up. Can't take the stairs. Usually try to take the stairs. Can't take the stairs. Got to get on the elevator. And the elevators at Sacred Heart Hospital in the past have always been very, 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 very crowded. They were not on Friday. So I thought, okay, I'm going to talk to the people that I am sharing this elevator with, and I'm going to greet them in Jesus Christ. I'm going to do it from behind my mask. And God set it up so that every stage of my elevator trip up and down, there was only one person on the elevator with me. So I got on it first, and another person followed me in, and I thought, all right, here's my moment. And so I greeted them in the Lord. All I said was, well, hello, how are you doing? <laughs> this poor lady looked at me like I had two heads. She really did. And she said, I'm fine. And she turned back and faced the, the little number pad, you know, like people would. And I said, are you working today? Are you visiting somebody? What are you doing? She said, I'm working. And she turned and faced the, the number pad. And she got off on like level three. I'm going to level five. And at level three, another person came on. And, and this was a, a gentleman. He came on and, and pushed his button, which was higher than my button. And so I thought, well, I only have two floors and this is going to go fast. I said, how are you doing today? He said, I am great. Thank you so much for asking me. How are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing wonderful too. He said, I get on this elevator every day. Nobody ever asked me how I'm doing. I said, well, I'm just curious. How are you doing? And so we, we talked for albeit about 15 seconds seconds, but I'm smiling behind my mask, and he's smiling behind his mask, and at the end, as I walked out, he said, well, thank you for greeting me today, and I was like, that's what Paul's talking about. <laughs> I went to where I was at, or the, the people that I was visiting, and spent some time with them, and then I came back out, got in the elevator, and I thought, okay, Lord, it's been going pretty good. I'm just done, and I get back on the elevator, and one person follows me in, and I realized I'm not, and so I said, well, how are you doing today? And that person, it was a lady this time, that person looked at me and said, I'm fine, and then turned back around, and I asked another question, don't even remember what it was now, and, and she did not respond, <laughs> and got off as quickly as she could, and she went down one floor, and another person came on, it was another lady, and I, I greeted her as well, and got no response at all when I said, how are you doing? just turned and stared at the door, and she got off one floor down, and then one more person got on, and we talked just, it, it was nothing. And then I, I thanked the nurses as I was walking out and just wanted to greet them in the Lord, hoping for an opportunity to open up a little more than that. Never did really get that, but I got those first two. There was some risk-taking involved, but my goal was to, to hopefully brighten somebody's day, just to let them know I appreciate you. And then I did get the opportunity to greet people. That's what Paul wants us to do. Greet people because Jesus lives in you. And greet them in his name. And from time to time, take some risk to do it because you don't know what the Lord will do with it. You have no idea what the Lord will do with it.
My guess is four of the five people that shared the elevator with me went home and told their spouses some nut job was on the elevator with me. But maybe number five went home and said, it's kind of cool, ride that elevator every day and nobody ever asked me that. It was cool today. And if that is the result, all right. At the end of it, as I was driving home, I found myself excited about church because we greet one another in the Lord. There is koinonia here. And when we get to greet each other in the Lord, it does something for us. So greet each other in the Lord.